You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee at Acumen Law, and with me, my co-host, Paul Doroshenko. Good afternoon, Kyla. Happy to be with you today. I just released a new song a few minutes ago. I'm yes. feeling kind of, you know, on top of the world with that. It's a cheery song. Wait, is it? Is it on top of the world looking down on creation? No, no. no. It's no. Uh, Cockeyed Optimist, which right. is a Rogers and Hammerstein classic from uh, South Pacific, originally sung by Mitzi Gaynor. Well, and, maybe uh, I put my twist on it. Maybe we'll play it for our listeners at the end of the podcast. I hope so, Jay. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I wanted to actually brag uh, myself instead about me. Um, you can talk about yourself all the time. Yeah. Well, first of all, I'm on a high today because mm-hmm. I won a trial on a very difficult ticket, and that made me happy. Yes. Always, always. That was you know, a good one. Excessive ex- acquittal on excessive speeding. Yeah, acquittal yep. on excessive speeding in a high-profile case. And I also won a case at the Court of Appeal yesterday. There you go. So I'm tired of talking about me. Why don't you guys talk about me for a while? <laughs> yeah. Um, sure. Yeah, it was a big win. No, uh, the Court yeah. of Appeal case is important. It is very important. We alluded to it earlier. Um, we actually talked about sort of the general issue in the past on the podcast, but now we have decisive law in British Columbia on this. So this all arises from changes to the legislation December 18th, 2018. And that was uh, the justice minister who was uh, no longer the justice minister after the SNC-Lavalin affair, Jody Wilson-Raybould, uh, and changes that uh, that she made to drinking driving legislation that we all looked at and thought there was problems with it. Yep. And you ended up appealing a case where an individual had entered a guilty plea with essentially a joint submission, including a four-year driving prohibition, but it wasn't on dangerous driving. No, it was for criminal negligence causing death, which, of course, is a higher standard. Um, It's a more serious offense, and it's a higher standard for the Crown to prove. But it's not a driving offense. No. It's outside Part 8.1 of the Criminal Code, which is the standalone portion of the criminal code dealing with offenses related to conveyances. So you've you've essentially done something that's so bad that it's criminally negligent and you've killed somebody, I guess, and that's ultimately what the plea is to. Yes. And the plea was with an agreement for a four-year jail sentence followed by a four-year... No, it wasn't an agreement on the driving prohibition. Oh, Okay. So there was, but there was a sentencing, there was a driving prohibition ultimately imposed by the court, um, which because of operation of law commences after the jail sentence is complete. Okay. So your client appealed this because uh, it was your view and your client's view that this was a uh, incorrect, unlawful sentence that it couldn't, the court had no authority to order it under the current's provisions of the criminal code. Yes. And so there's two competing lines of authority, one out of Saskatchewan and one out of Ontario, um, that is, uh, um, sorry, you were rubbing your face like you were distressed and it was really distracting. (laughs) The whole thing is distressing anyway. Well, um, essentially the two divergent lines of authority in Ontario 
Uh, the question was uh, answered in the negative. You cannot impose a driving prohibition under Section 320.24, sub 4 of the Criminal Code, the discretionary driving prohibition section, because that only applies to the offenses that are listed specifically in that section. So the court has all the power to impose a driving prohibition for those offenses, but no power to impose a driving prohibition for any other offense. So it looks like the court in your decision came to the conclusion that this was an oversight rather than a intentional thing by Parliament. Well, they don't wasn't going to patch it up. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, see, I, don't... I don't know that it's an oversight either. I just wonder if they, Parliament expected that this section, criminal negligence causing death, that should not be used for driving. Well, ultimately, the, the Court of Appeal says whether or not this omission is the result of a drafting error. I agree with the court in Boyley, the Ontario decision, that it is not the role of the court to correct a drafting error and to effectively amend the provision, particularly where the provision is unambiguously drafted. And so they say, you know, we can't say whether or not it's a um, whether or not it's a drafting error. Could be. I mean, it's weird that they took it out, but yeah, can't say. So for those people who are not uh, lawyers or in the legal field, the criminal code basically spells out everything that's a crime and it sets out all the steps for it. And it's really up to Parliament to make those decisions. We don't decide that something is immoral and it's a crime. We don't decide... You know, that is a democracy making these decisions and the court doesn't get to make the, you know, doesn't get to fix it or fill it in. Um, you know, that is part of the uh, exercise of protecting people's rights is that the, the court looks to see whether or not it's charter compliant and then the court looks to see whether or not the essential elements are made out. Well, and it's also like if the Crown really wants a driving prohibition, they could charge dangerous driving. They could. They could charge dangerous driving. It's a it's a lesser offense. The elements are different. They could get a conviction for both, I guess, theoretically. I mean, I don't know about the Kynapple issue there, but I kind of wondered whether or not the uh the there was an opportunity for a probation condition that would restrict driving. And I think maybe you investigated that at some point. Yeah, so you can have a probation condition to restrict driving, but the probation um condition can only be uh, applied if the person gets a jail sentence of uh, less than two years. And so because the jail sentence was four years in this case, there could be no probation. Oh, okay. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. So basically the law in British Columbia, if you're convicted of criminal negligence causing death involving a motor vehicle or otherwise, is that you cannot get a driving prohibition for that. And further, you cannot get a driving prohibition for any offense that is not specifically listed in that section of the criminal code. Which is fascinating. And of course, Parliament's going to have to fix this. But uh, in the meantime, I would imagine those other ones from Ontario and Saskatchewan are probably going to the Supreme Court of Canada. And does this mean they are going to the Supreme Court of Canada? You're going to the Supreme Court of Canada as well? I received an email from Crown today. So I suspect they'll be making an application to try and join the existing matters. Okay. Up with our BC interpretation. There you go. Okay. So maybe I'll see. Well, it's nice that you succeeded at the Court of Appeal. Court of Appeal on what, Thursday and traffic court on Friday? Yeah. Just the life of a driving lawyer. The life of a driving lawyer. Um, I also wanted to uh, briefly give a quick recap because we talked uh, uh, a little. Did we talk on the podcast about light up the streets? Yes. I think we did. I think we did briefly. Maybe not. No, we didn't. Oh. Yeah. So light up the streets uh, was a an impaired driving enforcement campaign that happened uh, this past weekend. Um and 
every yeah it happened on the friday night yeah so we haven't had a chance to so this was a uh, a coordinated effort across british columbia by all uh police departments and rcmp to stage roadblocks in high visibility areas and in the lower mainland at every exit on highway one all the way from hope to vancouver it was a little different from what we've seen in the past you know we always see these uh public notices yeah you know check stop season is beginning or counterattack season is starting but this was well very clearly intended to tell people beforehand to make a clear statement beforehand and to be very visible not to necessarily be hidden and catch you but to for anybody who's there to see you know what you're gonna get caught Yep. And so that was a, a a departure from what we've seen in the past and uh, an interesting departure because I think it actually arises from some of your advocacy over the years on this point. Yeah, I would say um, that that may play a small role in it, um, that, you know, talking about uh, about the need for visible, consistent enforcement. And and if you look at the numbers from this roadblock uh, or series of roadblocks, so across British Columbia, Approximately 55,000, a little under 55,000 drivers were pulled over and checked for sobriety. And there were 228 check stops across BC. And of those 228 check stops uh, and 55,000 drivers, only 222 drivers were found driving impaired. Which at the beginning, you might look at that and you might say, oh, well, this means there's not actually a big problem with impaired driving. Less than 1%, less than one half of 1%. Such a small number in the grand scope of people yeah. pulled over. Yeah. Nobody's freaking and driving. What's up? But it's actually the effect of their big presence and their big announcement. Yeah. People make the decision not to drink and drive because they know that they're going to get caught. And that's part of the idea. When you uh, know you, you literally cannot make it home without going through a check stop, you're not going to drink in the first place, or you're going to arrange a ride in advance. And this is the thing that we've seen over the years. Every time that there's a discussion about changes in the law um, and that it's getting harsher or whatever, there is a decline for a period of time. And that is because the public is educated about it and they think about it and it's present in mind. And they yep. think to themselves, oh my gosh, I don't want to get caught. Most people's biggest fear is being on the front page of the newspaper, which of course doesn't for happen. Most people, for most happen. people, that's never going to happen. But um, the uh, people forget uh, and they start thinking that, oh, it's been a long time since I saw any police on the road and I, I can probably squeak at home and I'm not going to be the one who kills somebody or causes an accident or something like that. But when they are regularly reminded that they're going to get caught and they see the enforcement and the enforcement is announced, they just don't do it. And what's better? And this is, you know, what's better to, to catch those people and punish them or to deter them in the first place? Obviously, you're, you've got a greater chance of saving a life if you deter people in the first place. I would say that this is proof of concept. I would also say that it is, you know, I'm a little frustrated. I've, I've talked to some officers about it who are disappointed because they feel like this was a big waste of money for nothing. And they don't see the value in the deterrent effect in the first place. Like, yeah, catching people's great, but better than catching people is people not being out there to catch in the first place. Exactly. Like, I mean, it's not great for our business. Well, I mean, but... <laughs> we, we, def we defend those people. Um, and so it just means fewer people for us, which is fine. Um, but the uh, point is that, uh, that uh, you know, if you're actually, if your goal is not to, to, you know, have great numbers for yourself, or your goal isn't to necessarily go and catch a fish essentially, but to, ensure that everybody gets home safely, 
then uh, everybody getting home safely is by, you know, making sure that you deter people. Yes. So there you go. You know, I realized we don't have a ridiculous driver this week, so I guess your song is our ridiculous driver. Well, why can't we come up with a ridiculous driver? All right. We have a ridiculous driver, but we're not going to go there yet. Because before we go to our ridiculous driver, we have to talk about this recent IRP case out of the BC Supreme Court called Maxwell. This is a bit of a different a different case. So this is a case where Mr. Maxwell gets disclosure of his report. And in the officer's re- sworn report to superintendent, he has the two devices, both same serial numbers, same device for both tests. It's supposed to be a different device for both tests. So a portion of the evidence indicates that the officer used the same device for both tests when he's supposed to use a different device from test one to test two. Which would be a defense. Obviously, because you're supposed to use two different devices. The second piece of evidence that he gets is the officer's typed narrative, where he writes out the details of what happened. And in his typed narrative, he again says it was the same device for both tests. Wow. That would seem like almost overwhelming evidence. But there's a third piece of evidence he gets, which is the officer's handwritten notes. And in the officer's handwritten notes, he does record two different serial numbers. See, to me, that would suggest on the face of it, um, unless there's something else out there. I mean, again, this is the superintendent of motor vehicles makes decisions I don't agree with most of the time. But I would come to the conclusion on the face of that, that the same device was used and that the officer may have had two devices. Maybe one wasn't used because it was malfunctioning. Maybe one wasn't used because it was uh, uh, the officer just made a mistake. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it seems to me the preponderance of evidence at that point is is the same device being used. However, I know the superintendent of motor vehicles wants you to take it One step that. further, yeah. So Mr. Maxwell never provided any evidence in the review hearing. He didn't comment one way or another on whether the second test was conducted on the same device. He just pointed to the error and said, okay, adjudicator, look at this report to superintendent and look at this narrative. They both list the same device, so you have to revoke the prohibition. He also never even addressed the notes in his argument um, to say these notes show the same ser- or a different serial number, but here's why you should accept the narrative in the report to superintendent over the notes. So he didn't address the conflict. Two steps. Didn't provide evidence himself on that point and then didn't actually address the fact that it listed to in another location. Yeah. And this is what the BC Supreme Court ultimately rules made the adjudicator's decision reasonable because He never provided any contrary version of events. He never sort of set it up for the adjudicator so the adjudicator could consider the conflict and resolve it a certain way or frame how to engage in the analysis. He just said, these two things say that I should win, so I should win, without addressing critical evidence that went to the heart of the issues in dispute. And because the burden of proof is on the applicant in the review hearing, the Court of Appeal has said, that that burden can be discharged in a couple ways. Number one, you can point to a flaw in the underlying documentation as a ground to have the prohibition set aside. But when it comes to conflicting evidence, it's not just pointing to the flaw, right? I know. But this is a real problem case to me. I mean, it's not going to get corrected at the Court of Appeal, and I'm sure it's not going to get yeah. appealed. Um, but it, it indicates this method that the superintendent uses. And, you know, recently we had a decision where the discussion was, yeah, the superintendent's got to engage in these things. Um, and I know that that's somewhat different here because we're talking about, um, an argument that is made and the superintendent engages with the evidence that was not discussed. Um, 
but ultimately but here before them, but was they had to consider. Sure, but ultimately here, you know, you're you're looking at it and you're saying to yourself, like, <laughs> more than fifty percent of the evidence says, and and the sworn document, the sworn document says it's the same device, and the narrative attached to the sworn document says it's the same I, device. I don't necessarily fault the court for finding the decision reasonable because that's the crux of discharging your burden is you have to like actually not just point to some evidence. Address all of the evidence if there are conflicts to persuade an adjudicator to accept your version because the Court of Appeal in the review says that the the burden of proof only comes into play in the case of an evidentiary tie. And the adjudicator essentially found that within the officer's evidence was an evidentiary tie. So he had to do more to discharge the burden than just point to something. I think a reasonable person looking at this or a person who was thinking about disputing their own IRP or even a lawyer who doesn't do this like in the day-to-day thing would look at it and come to the same conclusion the lawyer did here, which was that, you know, this is such a fundamental flaw um, on the face of the evidence before you that it shouldn't have to be something that you spend your 30 minutes arguing about in the oral hearing. But again, this is the reason that you do the, you know, unfortunately, you and I have become lawyers who beat the dead horse. (laughs) Um, And we do it because we know that this is what the tribunal does. And I don't think it's fair. It doesn't strike me as fair. Um, this is the law we've got and the government gets to write the law the way that they do. And I guess British Columbians, as I've said before, are never going to overturn the government on the basis of uh, the perception that the drunk driving, that the government's taking too soft of a line on drunk driving, for example, by making it fair. <laughs> so um, if, if you know what I mean. So I, I, I yeah. Don't uh, brief inter- uh, interruption for the delivery of lunch. Well, it's a good time to take the interruption because... It's time to move on now to... The Ridiculous Driver of the Week. A surprising bestseller? The pinpoint method of cross-examination is catching on. Law firms and new litigators across Canada have caught on to cross-examination, the pinpoint method. Kaiva Lee's straightforward handbook that teaches you effective cross-examination skills. <laughs> so this is out of Knoxville, Tennessee. And this is a uh, Tennessee Highway Patrol trooper who's getting trained on the breathalyzer class. And she shows up to breathalyzer class. Or he, rather. He shows up to breathalyzer class and uses the breathalyzer machine and gets a positive reading for alcohol. And as a result of this, this gets worse. So This is just, before the demonstration. Or not, yeah, not like just showing up to training drunk. Yeah. But then uh, because he's showed up to training drunk, goes through a discipline process, gets initially terminated uh, by the Tennessee Department of Safety, saying, you know, you showed up drunk to work, you're fired. Yeah. That termination was overturned by the um uh by the uh, Tennessee Department of Safety internal appeals process. So he had a good lawyer. Yep. So he went to a judicial review with a court. Um the court reinstates him uh with back pay and benefits for one year. And uh then the Tennessee government appealed that. They went to the Tennessee Court of Appeals and the Tennessee Court of Appeals still upheld the reinstatement. And do you want to know why? Why? Because the breathalyzer results were not admissible under state evidentiary rules 
And without the breathalyzer, there was no evidence that this guy was drunk at work. That is awesome. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, again, like, uh, who knows if he was actually drunk and. Yeah, he blew a point oh three, so yeah. he wasn't drunk, but. You can you can get that from, it was from the night all before. sorts of different ways. The know? evidence, apparently the night before, he had a panic attack. He had previous military deployment. He treated his panic attack with a bunch of alcohol um, and uh, awoke between 2 and 4 a.m., drank more alcohol. And uh, then ended up. I don't think that's a firing offense. So I, I guess think there's obviously underlying issues. But interesting that funny, they, the breathalyzer data gets ruled inadmissible. But whenever a police officer's breathalyzer results get ruled inadmissible, how do they feel about it? Yes, they're upset about it. Only until yes, yeah. only until you blow yourself, I guess. Well, that's interesting. I've never thought of that angle of it. We have seen similar things uh, in BC where people um, in various oh, different. Right. Yeah. The Al Marty case yeah. that I won. Yeah. Where I lost and yeah. you won. Yeah. We have to make there that clear, of course. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So for our lovely listeners, now this is the end of our podcast. If you need to reach us related to a driving law issue, you can find us online at VancouverCriminalLaw.com or give us a call at 604-685-8889. Tune in next week for another exciting episode of Driving Law, but stick around for... Cockeyed Optimist featuring Prairie Paul. When the skies of bright canary yellow, I forget every cloud I've ever seen. So they call me a cockeyed optimist, immature and incurably green. I have heard people rant and rave and bellow That we're done and we might as well be dead But I'm only a cockeyed optimist And I can't get it into my head I hear the human race is falling on its face And hasn't very far to go But every whippoorwill is selling me a bill and telling me it just ain't so. I could say life is just a bowl of jello and appear more intelligent and smart. But I'm stuck like a dope with this thing called hope, and I can't get it out of my heart. just a bowl of jello and appear more intelligent and smart but i'm stuck like a dope with this thing called hope and i can't get it out of my heart i can't get it out of my heart not this heart <laughs>